Assalamu alaikum. I'm Sabah Fatma and you're listening to She Speaks Academic Muslimas. So today we're talking to Anbreen Bashir, Associate Professor of Biology at Harris-Stowe State University. Assalamu alaikum, Anbreen. Wa alaikum assalam, Sabah. Thank you so much for doing this with me. Thank you. Uh, so Anbreen, um, I know that you're from uh, a very beautiful place on earth called Kashmir, and I know you grew up there. Um, and you had mentioned to me that, um, first of all, what was life growing up in Kashmir? Oh, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. I loved it so much. Kashmir is a beautiful place surrounded by Himalayan mountain ranges. So um, it's a real paradise. It is a real paradise. Yeah, it is called paradise on earth. So like, what makes it paradise? Uh, what makes it paradise is the beauty of it and uh, also uh, the people. The people are known for their hospitality and mannerism. So, uh, yeah. So these were the words of Amir Khusro. Whenever somebody says uh, paradise, it reminds me of his couplet. Meaning that if there is paradise ever on earth, I mean, it's here, it's here, it's here. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Uh, you uh, grew up there with your mom and dad and your brother, uh, right? Your two siblings? Yes. Yes. And so you'd mentioned to me that your mom had a great influence on uh, your uh, chosen profession of biology, which is, you know, not not typical uh, in terms of mothers impacting. How did your mom influence your career choice? Yeah, well, my mom had, um, my mom has masters, has done masters in uh plant biology and also MPhil uh, in plant biology. So I was really passionate about her profession because um, I would say that I was fortunate enough sometimes to get an opportunity to go for field trips, plant collection uh, with her to the Himalayas, so which was really amazing. And it kind of, you know, opened my eyes to the plant kingdom and kindled that interest to learn more about plants. So, uh, so you know, that kind of made me choose the path of learning plant biology. Oh, nice. And so then you did your master's in Kashmir? Yes, I did my master's in Kashmir in botany. Oh. From University and of Kashmir. So what brought you over to the United States? So uh, right after I completed my master's, I got married and my spouse worked here in the United States. And uh, I, I decided to... Uh, you know, come to United States and then do my PhD or for that matter, you know, choose my career path here. So, uh, yeah. And was your husband uh, from Kashmir as well? Yes, yes. He's from Kashmir as well. So when you moved to the United States uh, in in the beginning, what was it like? What, what did you think of the U.S.? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, it, it's it's a big change. It's a big cultural change as well as, you know, I was... I was still in the mindset of, you know, uh, studies because I got married right after my master's and that was just, uh, uh, you know, stepping stone for me, taking into account the environment that I have grown up in where, you know, which is grounded in the desire to uh, learn and achieve. So, yeah. uh, so, so here, I mean, uh, when I came to U.S., uh, firstly, I said that it was like a cultural shock. It was totally different. So I often used to tell uh, my family and stuff when I came here that, you know, sometimes when you're in um, 
back home when you were in Kashmir. So if nobody visited you, it was the, you know, the milkman, the mailman. <laughs> so, and at first it was not that the day I stepped here, I started working, right? So at times it just seemed to me that I didn't see anybody except for my husband the whole entire day. So that was like mm-hmm. a shock, but we would make a point every evening when he would come from work, we would make a point of, you know, going groceries, visiting places, um, just so that, you know, I wouldn't get that boredom. (laughs) Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, that's something like a lot of new immigrants face, especially when they get married and they come here, they lose their entire community, they lose their parents, they lose their cousins and siblings and everybody else that used to surround them. And now they're in this brand new place waiting for their husband to come home. So how come, since you had a master's in botany, why didn't you get a job uh, right away? Did you not want to work at the time? Yes. So uh, so when I came here, um, Sabah, I was on a spouse visa. And I did... Uh, I did try my best. At first, you know, I was thinking about that, uh, that I should either work for Monsanto and Pfizer or Pfizer because uh, taking into account my plant biology background and my interest in, you know, research, I thought that that would be an ideal opportunity for me to go to. I could use my prior knowledge and I would get a new skill set. And at that time, there was an opening in Monsanto. It was like an entry level job. And it also offered some sort of, you know, training, uh, high throughput training. But uh, so I was very close to getting a job until, um, you know, my the employer figured out that they would have to sponsor me. So they wouldn't hire me with uh, the, the spouse visa. So uh, for them, it was like, why would we spend money, you know, sponsoring an immigrant when we could hire somebody else? Right. So. Uh, that that was uh, that was the the first thing, and then I uh, basically took an alternate route uh, to pursue my you know interest in research, and I went for a doctoral program, and for that I just switched to the student visa. Right. I mean, you know, a lot of people seem to think that you know. Um, people come into this country, and it's really easy to get a job as an immigrant. But there are so many hoops to jump through. Uh, most employers don't want to sponsor. It costs a lot to the company. Yep. It costs time um, to the to the person who is who gets yep. the H-1B work visa. Not to mention there's a lot of insecurity that goes along with having an H-1B visa, which is that if That's you true. if you get fired, you're, yeah. you're yes. you yes. lose your status in the country. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I haven't actually checked the the legal uh, system or the legal approach that is uh, taken for these, you know, H1, H4 uh, immigrants right now, but uh, they might have a temporary H4 work permit uh, at present. I don't know. But at that time, you totally could not do anything. Uh-huh. So you were totally dependent on your uh, spouse. So so that's another shock moving to a different country. I mean, you, you were either you were, uh, you know, working back in your own country or maybe, you know, you were uh, studying. So here you're totally doing nothing independent on another person. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that 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 can be. I mean, that is the tale of many many immigrant wives who come yes. here on spousal yeah. visas. That yeah. in the first year or two, they just are paralyzed because they 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 can't participate in you know education. They can't participate in job, uh, and they're just stuck at home uh, yeah. essentially. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so then you went through the PhD route. What was uh, the PhD like? And did you end up having kids while doing PhD? Or because I know you have uh, 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 daughters as well. So yes. how did the kids figure into the PhD route? So, uh, so sum up when I came to this place and when I figured out that, you know, I have to take the, uh, you know, grad school route route and uh, continue further studies. Uh, so I didn't directly join the PhD program. I started applying once, you know, I got, I call it a rejection, rejected from Monsanto based on the spouse visa. Yeah. So I started applying for a PhD program. But at the same time, I, I wasn't sure about the academia here. So I wanted to get a taste of it. So what I did was that while applying, I also, you know, enrolled in a community college to take some, uh, you know, basic computer classes just to get a feel of it and see right. you know, how classes are taught, what is the student-teacher relationship and, you know, how do the, uh, basically to get a feel of it. So then uh, I did that. I also took a, a biology class at UMSL just to see, you know, how it works in um, higher education institutions. Right. And after, and uh, in the meantime, you know, I was accepted at St. Louis University and, I joined the doctoral program. And yes, you're right. My uh, first one was a first child was born during uh, my PhD. And it was quite a bit of challenge. But um, I was fortunate enough. I mean, my husband has been extremely supportive. And so have been my parents and both sides of the family. So I did get a lot of help. And uh, but at the same time, like I told you earlier, I mean, you know, uh, for, for for my family, I mean, my mom had MPhil, so for me, it would never, uh, I would never be done with a master's. So I knew <laughs> that, you know, she had raised the bar for me. <laughs> and my dad, my dad had master's in mathematics. So, so I knew that, I mean, I, I had set higher goals for myself. So that was like a, that was kind of a motivation for me. Although, I mean, I would say that the days were longer, the nights were longer. There was a lot of work, uh, you know, having a newborn. But, uh, but you know, yeah. I thank God that I was able to, you know, get through and finish my uh, doctoral program successfully. Yeah. Alhamdulillah, that's great. Yes. Yeah, I mean, so I think a couple of things. One thing is that um, for, a, uh, for many immigrants, especially South Asian immigrants, um, <laughs> but I'm sure it's common in other immigrant communities as well, our support system comprises generally of our parents and our in-laws, uh, sometimes of siblings yes. as well. But uh, I know for a lot of people uh, from South Asia, pa- parents and uh, and the husband's parents and the wife's parents are crucial in uh, taking care of children. And we <laughs> we trust them far more than we um, like we don't, you know, we don't have uh, as much a system of like putting our kids in daycare as much as we have like, hey, yes, grandparents. Yes, yeah. Here are yeah. the kids while we go study for a little bit. Um, so, because I, I hear that story a lot, uh, where you know, and my own parents that's why they came here, they came to help yeah. me, uh-huh. um, raise my kids while I was doing my PhD. Yes, um, I mean, I think we're fortunate enough to get that parental support, and uh, I think that that's that's very crucial, and also to keep your child motivated at the same time is very important as well. Right. So uh, I, I just feel that parents do, uh, you know, have a big role in shaping who you are. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, the fortunate bit is like is almost like a 
I think one is a, it's that it's a different culture altogether, but also yes. it's a it's a kind of a privilege that we have as well. Yes. Um, in that, for many other people, uh, their parents might also have full time jobs, or their parents might be uh, living very far from them in another yes. state. Yes. Um, whereas, um, you know, our parents um, are you know often retired at that age when we're having kids, and or, mm-hmm. um, yes. and then the, there's a cultural difference where the expectation is that we live with our parents and our parents live with us and you know yes. there's a yes. mutual relationship um uh, that goes on there that uh, that is i think particular to uh, many immigrant cultures that's so true yes yeah so then um um how, and you said you had a sub- very supportive spouse as well yes uh, yes so i think yeah that's kind of uh, crucial as well when you're having kids and uh, yeah, doing a phd <laughs> I mean, you um, kind of divide your time, you divide your hours and try to figure out things. And that's what's needed. Right, right. And so then, um, so you did your PhD. And then how did you decide, okay, because you, again, have a degree that could be, that could have a non-academic job. How did yes. you decide, oh, I'm going to go into academia? Yeah, well, you know, during my doctoral program, I uh, also worked as a TA a research assistant and also teaching assistant. So I, I, I really like teaching. So I, I had never thought of that, but, uh, but I felt that teaching was t- teaching was what I basically wanted to do, and it was a blessing that I got that opportunity to teach at St. Louis University. So I was working as a lab assistant. I was also working as a TA for the for my teacher's class, and I got to teach a couple of lectures for him sometimes, and you know, grade stuff and all. So so what I did was that I was fortunate enough because. In St. Louis University, they had a certification uh, program available, which was called the Certification of Excellence in University Teaching Skills. And I was able to avail that opportunity and go through that and complete that certification program as well uh, while pursuing my doctoral degree. And uh, that that was an amazing program. It was really enriching and uh, you had to create your teaching portfolio. They would give you different scenarios on, you know, uh, classroom environment, classroom teaching and, you know, how to prep for your classes. Uh, what your audience can be, some of the challenges that you can face during teaching. And uh, that that really motivated me and that really helped me uh, truly decide that, yes, I do want to teach. Oh, wow. You yeah. know, a lot of graduate students don't get the, um, don't get any training on how yes. to teach. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I certainly did not get any training on how to teach, which was terrible. Yeah. Because I mean, it still happened to have the program, so I got lucky. That's, that, that's that is excellent because I mean that is, uh, I mean in philosophy that's all we do if we go to grad school. Most of us uh, end up going into teaching. Yet uh-huh. uh, most grad school programs right now don't have a teaching compo- like a a training, um, you know, a training course where they can mm-hmm. teach us how to, you know, uh, teach better. Uh, so that's excellent that you got that opportunity. And so that that gave you the bug, okay, that I want to go into academia. Yes, yes, yeah. Uh, excellent. And so now I saw that you not only work at Harris uh, Stowe State University, but you also work at SLU um, yes. uh, as an adjunct. So why why the two jobs? Well, uh, SLU is my alma mater. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, well, that's not the reason. I was just kidding. But 
uh, as far as St. Louis University is uh, concerned, the, the department that I'm teaching there is the School for Professional Studies, and I just teach the biology courses for them. And the, the School of Professional Studies actually uh, caters to the needs of uh, adult population, adult students. Mm. So most of the students are, you know, about the age range of 35, mostly 30, 35 about. And it's mostly working adults, you know, who work like... Um, mostly nine to five jobs or even you know late night shifts and stuff so uh, so like i said the, the training that i got i really wanted to use that training so um at Harris, the student population that i have are usually the students that have graduated right um you know from the high school and uh, between 18 to 20 25 years of uh, age but uh, so, so the way they think is totally different from the way the the adult population thinks and the challenges that they face while working and then continuing their education at the same time. Many of them have, you know, when they introduce themselves, many of them um, have taken long breaks between, you know, when they were in college uh, and, you know, now that they are, you know, enrolled in the uh, degree programs right so so it's quite a big bit of challenge to tailor your teaching style to cater their needs i really uh like doing that so at first i started teaching in st louis university uh i, I taught a face-to-face -face class and i also presented a little research project which um I was curious while I was teaching them, I figured out that most of the students really liked the traditional method of teaching, the, the marker board or the chalkboard, yeah. rather than, you know, uh, having the PowerPoints or videos and stuff. So I, I was at first I was like, is it just one class or is it the general trend within this age group? And I figured out that uh, in a couple of classes, uh, actually more than two classes, that, you know, 60% of the students, they they were happy and they okayed the traditional way of learning because whatever questions they had, they could ask me the questions, I would go on the board and do it for them or basically show them. And right. they, they re I think one of the reasons might be the, the time constraint that they are on. They would like to, they would like to resolve every issue in class. Right. So, so, so that's, that was different. So that was a face-to-face -face class, you know, unlike the technology that we use in other classes and, you know, my other school. Uh, but then after a while, uh, the, they moved all day there was a transition they moved all their face-to-face -face classes online so now it's totally online so uh, so online uh, therefore was a bigger challenge taking into account i mean the the little research project that i had done actually i presented it at uh, uh, st louis university as well so so uh, you know designing the classes for them so that the, that need of theirs is satisfied or they're happy learning using yeah. an online platform was a challenge and i uh, i really like that so for instance i have uh, journals for them so the journal is one-on-one -on -one communication between the student and the teacher so none of the other students get to see the journal that's one oh. part 
And journal is like a personal diary. So you would... And it's kept online, like on Blackboard? Yes, yeah, it's all yeah. online, yes. So the student actually writes what their frustration is and what's going on. And, you know, that, that really yeah. helps me know more about the student. And then... Um, uh, we have discussion boards where there's a general discussion between the students uh, on a certain topic and uh, that I, I mean, believe me, we start somewhere, the students start somewhere and they end somewhere else. There's such a <laughs> such a great learning tool. It's amazing. Yeah. And uh, so, so, I mean, you know, I uh, and recently I've started this ecology lounge uh, and Ecology Lounge basically is also another online feature, which I started on my own. It's like a discussion board, but then I call it Ecology Lounge. So the thing is that if you are curious about something, if you hear something is happening out there in news or anything, I mean, just post it on the lounge and everybody oh. can comment, we can discuss. And then uh, it's funny, you know, last semester, a student that was... Uh, uh, there was thunderstorm in St. Louis, and so one of the students had posted a picture of a tree in their backyard that was struck by lightning. So there was right. like a crack that kind of ran through the middle. So then there was a discussion. The students started asking that, do you think that this tree is going to decay uh, and get destroyed or do you think it's going to survive <laughs> so there was biology involved in that right, right. so it's such a great learning, yeah. learning experience and everybody allowed it so so that's one of the reasons why I uh, like this online course you know although it's a bit of a challenge because with my teaching the regular full load at Harris and then doing this but I just I, I just love this challenge and it seems to me that it's very rewarding once I see the student evaluation and if I'm yeah. able to, uh, you know, convey uh, my message through and teach them the way they expect me to. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, these are really good strategies that you that you just gave for uh, yeah. online teaching because online teaching is something that, you know, many of us struggle with. Uh, in terms of how to transition our class from traditional setting to online setting. So yes. having one-to-one -one journals that are not accessible to other uh, students. And then, uh, like you said, um, having uh, having a discussion post, which is yes. about the, the world, the news, the outside world, so that they can tie in... Um, tie-in outside uh, yes. material to the class material. That Those are, like, excellent ideas. Definitely. And also, you know, uh, they have... Um, uh, there, there's a lot of technical support as well. Recently, they offered, they, well, they didn't offer, it was a mandatory uh, thing for everybody. So they offered this online um, certification training. So every instructor had to go through it. So you had okay. to complete it. Yes, so I, I did that part also. And that was very useful. I mean, although some of the elements already existed in my courses, but, you know, it was something new new tools that people have used so I could really benefit a lot from that as well yeah nice and so like so you are in botany and I saw that you work on rice genetics what's what's rice genetics um well my doctoral project was on rice genetics so we studied the uh we looked at the hybridization between uh, cultivated rice and uh, wild rice and the gene flow between the two plants. So uh, there's usually in the vicinity of the cultivated rice. So for instance, if the rice is cultivated, usually within the same habitat, you have wild rice growing as a weed. 
And sometimes there's gene flow, meaning there's pollination between the two. So right. that has an impact on that um, wild rice and it increases its weediness and, you know, uh, new super weeds are evolved because of that. So, yeah, so I'm really interested in that and done a lot of study during my doctoral program as well on that. Um, so this is kind of... Uh not related to your research per se, but I just wondered if you have any thoughts and you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to. Uh, but I wanted to ask like, uh, what do you think of like patenting um, um, seeds? Uh, because I know there's a huge controversy around uh, patent. I know Monsanto, for example, has sued farmers. Um, uh, and uh, But just this idea that you can patent seeds because they were developed in a lab and you get fined humongous amounts. These farmers who are not that well-to-do get, get fined humongous amounts because um, – and they, so they can't re-harvest without, um, without permission. Uh, do you have a take on it considering that you, you – well, uh, your research you know, concerns this? Yeah, I think – if you let nature take its course and if it's something that the nature does, if there's a gene flow because of, you know, a natural event, I, you know, I, I don't really think that it should be an issue, but, but uh, I, I'm not with it, but I kind of understand why Monsanto is doing that because Monsanto is, you know, really big on biotechnology. And uh, I, I mean, uh, there is there there's a there's a there's not a so there there are two sets of people out there who are pro organic and pro GM. So uh, the the slogan of Monsanto is that they're feeding the uh, you know overpopulated hungry world. If it was not for them, then you know <laughs> people would not survive, right? So if you look <laughs> at it to a certain extent, if you look at the, it, it is true. So I do understand you know uh, where where this comes from. But again, like I said, I mean, if nature takes its course, if nature is making that cross possible, possible and uh, I I I don't see an issue with that. But personally, yeah. over the years, I mean, I don't know. I'm more pro-organic than pro-genetically modified. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, 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 my worry is more that, you know, Monsanto is such a huge company. I mean, I don't want to make this about Monsanto, so we can move on. Yeah, but like, yes, yes. Uh, but Monsanto is like such a massive company that when it sues these farmers, these farmers can't fight this big company. So That's I don't so, think there yeah. has been a single case where a small farmer won. Yeah. I think in all the cases, Monsanto won. Yes. And uh, I think they've like won like millions of dollars through these judgments and those farmers then go out of business. So that's my worry I with Monsanto. Agree. But yeah, um, but yeah, moving off. So there's, a, there's a thing also, I mean, you know, like you said, we don't want to discuss Monsanto a lot. But yes. the thing also is that, you know, there's, there's you know, as far as this, this group, uh, organic versus GM, I mean, there's not a whole lot of published research out there that, uh, talks about the negative impact of introducing transgenes into plants or genetically modified organisms. So, you know, uh, so it's, it's really hard to fight, uh, you know, against the big biotech companies when you don't have a whole lot of published data that it's doing any harm. So that's, right. that's also kind of a positive, I wouldn't say positive, but that's also uh, another uh, point that why you know uh, the the biotech companies have a upper hand right right 
Okay, so uh, you also deal with cash crops and uh, ozone layers impact on cash crops. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. So, uh, so we have been funded uh, by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Is uh, this a Haristo or this is a SLU project? No, no, no. This is this is a Haristo project. So we got funded by the U.S. Uh, by the Department of Education, U.S. Department of Education, in uh, 2016, and then again in 2018. And in 2016, the uh, the uh, the I was uh, serving as a co-PI for the project, and uh, it was uh, uh, more. It was tailored more to improve our sustainability and urban ecology program, which is a relatively new degree program um, at Harris. And uh, most of the activities were geared towards, um, uh, you know, the students, how to engage students in small research uh, projects that are tailored towards their interest. And at the same time, also looking at sustainability, how to sustain our earth, what can we do to save our urban environments. So it in, so the student projects basically involve things like aquaponics, learning aquaponics, learning hydroponics, uh, you know, um, and so on and so forth. But the so that was the first part of the the grant. But the second mm. part, the supplemental that we got in um, uh, to that was granted to us in 2018. Uh, so I, along with a couple of my other colleagues, are serving as a principal investigator for that, and it's collaboration in collaboration with the remote sensing department of uh, Saint Louis University. So this part of the grant is more geared towards faculty research and also involving students at the same time. So teaching students the research skills. So this uh, supplemental grant has, um, so we have basically two research projects going on. One is, uh, you know, looking at um, soybean. And what we are doing is that we are growing soybean in the greenhouse and um, we are exposing soybean to different levels of ozone, like 70 parts per billion, 140 parts per billion. And uh, this uh, ozone is, the ozone levels, the ground ozone levels are going to increase, are expected to increase in near future. So we're trying to study the impact of um, ozone on soybean and uh, the overall yield of the crop, which is expected to decline uh, because of the impact of uh, ozone. So the second part of the uh, project is um, it's, it's basically field work. And uh, so the field work is also done at Harris on Harris campus. So we have a center for uh, uh, agriculture research and education. So we have been growing corn there. And uh, it's drought stressed corn as well as, you know, non drought stressed corn. So we have two genotypes growing there. And we are looking at the uh, how the plants are able to grow in drought versus non drought conditions. And we're using remote sensing um, uh, tools as well for that. So uh, in collaboration with the, the Department of uh, Remote Sensing from St. Louis University. So we're using the drones um, drones and stuff to get data from the plants. So for instance, wow. if a plant, yeah, if a plant is healthy, it's going to absorb a lot of UV, uh, sorry, a lot of visible uh, light. 
but mm. and reflect a lot of near infrared light but if a plant is for instance if it's dehydrated if it's under drought stress conditions it's going to absorb a lot of near infrared light so the the drones and the remote sensing technology it catches those spectral signatures uh, from the plants and it helps us in uh, you know determining what the future of the plants is going to be and uh, so like these drones are like floating in the air uh, yes, during data collection like, you know time. How, have you have you seen those you know uh, remote control little planes? A oh. little yeah yeah it's it's a similar concept. They're similar yeah. So they're but, controlled. So ba- basic, but basically, like around data collection time, they're released and then they capture the yes, data and yes. then, okay, excellent. Yes, wow. Yeah. And then so uh, like I said, I mean the main reason why we got funded was because we wanted to involve students and and students are uh, engaged in the in these projects like for instance when I told you that we collect you know ozone um, data so uh, we had to construct ozone chamber for that and obviously all the students who are doing involved in the research project they were involved in uh, building that uh, ozone chamber which was a big thing and they're also uh, trained on using different technology and getting different uh, readings data collection analyzing data so so yeah so it's it's all fun and then you know you know that in near future these ozone levels ground ozone levels are supposed to increase Um, so so it's a very neat project which can predict our future uh, as far as uh, global warming and you know um, yeah increase makes, in pollutants is concerned yeah it does make me a little bit sad too though i mean you know, I that know. The, <laughs> it's very sad it's very sad yes the, yeah the earth is coming to this state where we need to do these types of research to make sure that uh, yeah, the planet can su- need to yeah we definitely need to you know reduce our ecological footprint so i always tell my students i mean look at a single day in your life you know when we talk about global warming when we talk about climate change i mean we think somehow i guess maybe it's human nature we think that we are not a part of it but we are a big part of it every single person makes a difference and always tell them look at your ecological footprint and uh, you know just think what you did since morning right (laughs) So, so like actually what? my daughter she came home today I don't know how she they estimated this in her class but uh-huh. she she told us that um she estimates that we used uh, we use up 200 gallons of water per day a family of four uh-huh. and I was like what she's like yeah if we're doing laundry and showers and yeah, 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 yeah. and this and that and all I was like oh my goodness but then I also had a student presentation today that uh-huh. said that um billionaires and corporations carbon footprint is a billion times worse than uh you know nor- yes. like regular people yeah. and so um what we should be doing is yes we should reduce our carbon footprint but what we should really be doing is we should be going after corporations to reduce their carbon footprints um because they have you know uh, the consequences of their pollution uh is uh, is massive and worldwide um, yeah, I, I, tr- I, I truly, you know, agree with this because, you know, the, the, the ground level ozone that we are talking about, you know, ozone in, up in the stratosphere is really important because it's the ozone that prevents us from UV radiation, right? So it's much needed. But the ground level ozone comes into existence because of our activities. So it's the, it's the uh, you know, the, the pollutants in the environment, it's the volatile organic compounds and the nitrogen oxides from by burning of fuels, fossil fuels by from vehicular exhaust, so on and so forth. So these 
volatile organic compounds and you know nitrogen oxides combine to form this ozone ground level ozone and in presence of sunlight that's where i mean we get it from otherwise you know ozone is good for us if it's way up in the stratosphere mm. the ozone that we are talking about that we are worried about is something that's created by us by our activities <laughs> So, you know, if I can be super truthful to you, say something embarrassing on here is that I had no idea that soil has ozone levels uh, or that we are uh, that, um, you know, so I'm so glad you gave that explanation because, yeah. you yeah. know, the, the ozone that I've, I've always heard about is the ozone on, you know, protecting our planet and the, how that's yeah. depleting. Yeah, even, so that's, even that, we, I mean, even that ozone is, you might have heard about the ozone hole or depletion of ozone. That's also created by us. It's the, you know, the chlorofluorocarbons, you might have heard the CFCs. Right. Uh, that again is, you know, our gift to the <laughs> mother nature. So, so they stay in the lower atmosphere for the longest time, and eventually they go up to the stratosphere, and the the their chlorofluorocarbons and the chlorine compound uh, component of that CFCs is released, and it depletes. It breaks the ozone that's much required in our. Um, stratosphere, which prevents us from UV radiation. So that's also some harm done by us. But this one, the stratospheric ozone is uh, very damaging after a certain level. It's not just damaging to the plants. It's also damaging to humans. It's also damaging to um, animals. You know, uh, once it reaches 70 parts per billion, it has very bad consequences uh, and it causes multiple ailments in our respiratory system as well. So you should see the plants. I mean, I wish I, there was a way of showing you pictures and stuff, but uh, the, the ozone in plants, you can see distinct stippling, which is like dark reddish blackish spots. And then there's yellowing of the leaves. Then eventually there's death of the leaves. Oh, so it, it's very sad to see all that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That is uh, much needed research. I'm so glad somebody's doing it. And I hope that, yeah, I mean, I, I do hope that the, Paris Climate Agreement is something that you know that uh, the yes. U.S. can be part yes. of, and that we can do our uh, do our share with uh, countries like India and China. Um, yeah, and also, you know, I mean, there's need for spreading awareness. So uh, sometimes, you know, I ask my students, so what did you do today? I mean, what did you eat for breakfast? Just to make a point. And then, you know, uh, one time the student said that, oh, uh, nothing. I just had a frozen yogurt and that's it. And then uh, and th that was that was really good because I had I wanted to show them this um, life cycle uh assessment there's something called lca life cycle assessment which kind of gives you a feel gives you the idea of uh, something that you think is minor is not actually minor it has a big impact on the environment so i showed them this video uh, so there's this uh, guy and he decides to just have uh, one um uh, smoothie for a breakfast so he dives from his home to the grocery store right so adding pollutants to the environment through vehicular exhaust and then he buys just one smoothie drives back home and then it showed every single thing that uh added that had impact on the environment so how was that 
uh, it was a strawberry smoothie. So how was that strawberry smoothie uh, made in the first place? Where did the strawberry come from? How many fertilizers were added to the ground, which to the farm, which actually uh, got washed off as runoff and ended in our water systems, right? Right. And then, and then you know, then it was transported uh, to uh, wherever that strawberry was processed and then finally there was packaging and then it was carried back to the city so in this whole process i mean it's unbelievable what Im- impact that single you know um, smoothie can have smoothie yeah. Can have. yeah so so i think awareness spreading educate awareness about you know saving our environment and early on i, I believe and I, I i really feel the need for it i think it should start right in the elementary schools yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, this is really good information for everybody to have. I mean, I, I uh, didn't expect the research part to be this interesting, but I'm glad that you talked about the research projects in a way that is understandable to people like me who are not into biology or botany or... Um, I think that's the need of the hour, I guess. Yes, it is definitely. Well, thank you so much, Anbreen, for giving me so much of your time. I so appreciate this. Oh, thank you, Sabah. It was a no. pleasure. Uh, thank you. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikumsalam.